This is Matthew Rubin. I am a commercial executive with CoreSearch, and you are listening to the IP Fridays podcast. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. My co-host Ken, Suzanne and I are welcoming you to episode 140 of IP Fridays. Today's interview guest is Matthew Rubin of CoreSearch. And my co-host Ken Suzanne talks with him about all different kinds of topics around trademarks. For example, where NFT trademarks come from mostly and how to use AI to search for logos and much more. Before we jump into the interview, I have news for you. On April 26th, we celebrated World Intellectual Property Day 2023 and a topic was Women and IP Accelerating Innovation and Creativity. And not very surprisingly, but sadly, um, WIPO found out that only about 16% of inventors listed are women. And even more surprisingly, in designs, only about 21% of listed designers are women. So WIPO underlined the need to ramp up efforts to bridge the gender gap in intellectual property-backed innovation. The Beijing IP Court has awarded Dassault, a Western company, 20 million RMB, which corresponds to roughly 3 million US dollars, in infringement damages in a copyright case. So from this we learn that Western companies can actually win in China. In an effort to harmonize patent law, WIPO has published a guide to patent case management for judges. The introduction states, as globalization leads to the homogenization of legal problems, it is hoped that this publication will serve as a source of inspiration and comparison for procedural innovation and improved solutions in patent case management and contribute to coherence and mutual respect between distinct legal systems and judicial structures across different countries. Now, let's jump into the interview with Matthew Rubin. Friday's podcast is Matthew Rubin, and we will be discussing trademark issues relating to the hot topics of NFTs, as well as AI logo searching. Matthew is a commercial executive with CoreSearch. He is evangelizing CoreSearch's suite of products and services and lands new business opportunities to new and existing customers. Matthew has been with CoreSearch for nearly 18 years. He started in 2005 as a trademark researcher, eventually managing the North American Operations Department. In 2014, Matthew moved into more of a customer-facing role managing the product support and training department, where he educated clients on how to best use their products and services. He holds a BA in history from the University at Buffalo. Welcome, Matthew, to the IP Fridays podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ken. Matt, how are trademark owners describing their NFT filings at the PTO, and what classes are they being filed in typically? So, 
typically these trademarks are being filed with the goods and services NFT or non-fungible tokens, but it expands beyond that. Also along the lines of words such as crypto assets, uh, crypto collectible, crypto tokens. So when looking for this, it's typical to kind of search a prefix of crypto to make sure that you're covering all of your bases when you're looking for similar filings. Along the lines of that, you're also expanding into digital art, virtual goods, or even the word Ethereum, uh, referring to the medium that um, that these NFTs are found in. Mm-hmm. Mostly of these uh, filings are found in class nine, but they're also found in some of the classes that encompass uh, licensing and merchandising like 16, 25, and 28. And then when you're getting involved in the NFT uh, selling, that's more in the service classes, like 35 and 41. Those are the most popular ones there. Mm-hmm. And what jurisdictions are NFTs being filed in? I would say 80 to 90% of them are in the United States. Second to that, you're seeing a lot of them in South Korea, and surprisingly, a lot of them in areas of South America, like Peru is a big jurisdiction for it, Argentina as well. Something to take into account here is a lot of these NFTs, they're not being filed yet, or they may never be filed. A lot of it is found kind of in common law. So when you're looking for specific jurisdictions, it kind of lies on the internet, a lot of these are simply involved in that Web 3.0 classification. So it is important when doing your due diligence, um, and if you're fi- you want to file in certain jurisdictions, just to make sure that you're covering a lot of the common law usage globally. Mm-hmm. What do you think is driving um, the uh, propensity for uh, applicants to file NFTs, for example, in the countries that you discuss, is there something that's happening in those countries? Why is it that they're filing them? So the United States, I sim- I simply think that it's it's because it's it's the largest marketplace in the world uh, that you'll see the majority of those filings in. South Korea was interesting. I wasn't expecting at first to see that as such a large filing. I think there's currently about four thousand registrations in South Korea for NFTs or non-fungible tokens. A lot of that is actually being driven by the automotive industry. So I'm seeing a lot of filings uh, through uh, Korean uh, automobile makers like Hyundai. Hyundai is a very, very large owner of NFTs. So surprising to see it there, but it is also showing a trait that is common with NFTs that there really is no one specific place that it is being concentrated in. It could be automotive, uh, it could be food and beverage, it could be uh, fashion, it really is everywhere. But I was surprised to see uh, the amount that is involved in the automotive space concentrated in South Korea. Mm -hmm. And how are NFTs being incorporated into the brand portfolios of trademark owners? What, What trends or patterns are you seeing? So one of the things that is paramount about NFTs is that it looks like it is a marketplace disruptor. So think of a company's portfolio of trademarks and IP in general, and maybe compare it against a set of billiard balls that you want to break with a cue. That's in the shape of a triangle. It's it's pretty established. You know, everybody knows their place. All of a sudden, there's chaos. This cue gets hit and the balls get scattered all over the place. And as they're getting scattered, another ball is thrown in there, and that's NFTs. You want to reorganize those balls. You don't have a triangle anymore. All these companies need to figure out how to incorporate the NFTs into their brands. 
So the way they market their brands, uh, the way they strategize on how to go to market changes. It's a virtual good too. And that's important to notice here. These are not something that's necessarily tangible. You can't hold it in your hand. It is something that is sold on the internet. It's sold through Web 0.3 or Web 3.0, my apologies. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And with that, it's there's a lot of unknowns on how to reorganize it. A lot of people don't even know. A lot of brands don't know how to work with these uh, with these NFTs. If you go to a lot of talks, discussions, you talk a lot of brand with a lot of brand owners about even what an NFT is. It's hard to define what they are, even in the medium that they are. You talk about things that are adjacent to NFTs. You talk about blockchain. You talk about cryptocurrency. You talk about Ethereum, a crypto wallet. They're all kind of incorporated, whether in on a broad or narrow sense. So when you want to understand how you would incorporate an NFT in, you'd have to learn about all of these other aspects of it. So a good example of how brands are starting to incorporate them in is almost like uh, it's a token to allow you to purchase a physical good. There's a lot of brand owners out there that say, you purchase this NFT, and that will allow you a space in line to purchase an actual physical good. This is a common way that it's starting to be used as. Um, you can see that it's brand new. If Just as you look at filings, in 2021, there are about 4,000 global filings for NFTs. 2022, that number jumped to 30,000. So, wow. And for 2023, we're seeing things along that same trend. And we're looking at preliminarily probably about 3,000 registrations through the first month, month and a half of the year. And that's, um, that's a lot of growth uh, in that area. It is. It's a tremendous amount of growth. And they're all being used differently, all different marketplaces. There's not one area of commerce that really can claim the majority ownership of it. Everybody Matt, let's, really, mm -hmm. let's talk about challenges, though. I know that, you know, we file trademarks all the time and we'll get office actions on various issues. What challenges are trademark owners typically coming up against when they're filing for or protecting their NFT marks? Well, to go along with the same analogy I mentioned before about breaking up that, uh, breaking up these set of billiard balls it creates chaos. And when you have chaos, there's a lot of reorganizing that has to go on. Brand owners have to make sure that they maintain stock and they maintain the order to make sure that their brands are not being infringed on. Um, they have their messaging, their marketing messaging in order. So when there's a new avenue for revenue that's brought into it, uh, there could be people who are bad actors, bad faith actors who want to come in and take advantage of this. And with that, you have to protect your brand online. You have to possibly uh, file defensive registrations um, and just make sure that your logo and your name uh, are being protected appropriately. So a couple of examples that have come up in the last couple of years, uh, one involving Nike, uh, they have had conflicts with a, a marketplace called StockX. Uh, Nike shoes, Nike sneakers are available for purchase on StockX, but StockX is also providing an NFT of Nike shoes. The image of a Nike shoe appears on that NFT, and that is being purchased by a consumer. And by purchasing that nft they're claiming rights 
to purchasing a particular Nike sneaker. Now, Nike sees this. They're saying they're using our trademark, that swoosh, that sneaker, that trade dress. They're selling it as an, as an NFT. And StockX, they're permitting shoppers to purchase that NFT and later redeem them for actual footwear. So there is this conflict of interest here. Um, are you purchasing the NFT? Uh, are you purchasing the sneaker? Who really has ownership of it? Is it StockX's mm -hmm. NFT? Is it Nike's sneaker? Can Nike then claim exclusive ownership or of, of using their NFT if StockX is doing this? So this is something that we're seeing happen more and more. Another example that uh, has made a lot of news lately is Hermes and their, um, their Birkin bag. So there mm -hmm. is a digital artist, Mason Rothschild, who's been selling something called a Meta Birkin. Now, this Meta Birkin is this Birkin bag, which is a very high-end luxury item. Uh, what they've done is they've taken this leather Birkin, and he's designing it with fur on the outside. So it appears similar to a Birkin, but not exactly the same as I said, there's a difference in the texture, the theoretical texture there is because it is an NFT. It's lined with fur. This is something that Mason Rothschild has defended in court, uh, citing his First Amendment rights that he can use this for artistic expression. Uh, and recently, the court has determined uh, in favor of Hermes that Mason Rothschild was infringing on Hermes's rights. So... A lot of the challenges are new. They're unknown. Uh, brand owners are looking for precedent here to make sure that nobody's infringing on their rights. It, it is a gray area. It really is the wild, wild west. And um, trademark use and defending it and uh, is really still being it's still being determined. Yeah. Yeah, certainly uh, something that we're watching uh, regularly. And I think there'll be lots of new cases this year and the years to come to help guide practitioners and their clients in this area. Really fascinating. Um, Matt, the last question that I have in this area is how can companies such as CoreSearch help individuals and companies in this growing area? So what CoreSearch is doing, using our traditional suite of services through screening, search, and watch, we are able to help you with your pre-screening, your searching, and your post-registration of NFTs. So, our industry, we have our, our experts that are looking at similar trademarks in the same marketplace uh, when conducting searches for NFTs, trademarks associated with NF NFTs, looking at these terms that I was talking about earlier, like cryptocurrency, uh, crypto wallets, not just NFTs and non-fungible tokens, and looking for anything that is... Um, going to cause a likelihood of confusion. And most important, we're going to look at common law source. As I mentioned, it's not just within those jurisdictions. It really is the Wild West. We need to make sure that common law is appropriately covered, especially in the realm of logos looking on the web. So this is something that we're doing, something that might be in the pipeline for a lot of providers out there. Uh, could be an NFT-specific search. You're going to want to look at different marketplaces that sell NFTs, something like OpenSea. These are important aspects that should be added to a full search report when you're looking to see if your mark can be cleared. Excellent. So, Matt, let's switch gears into AI or artificial intelligence searching. 
um, as well as machine language uh, issues. How is AI, which is artificial intelligence, and ML, machine learning, able to detect similar designs? What is the process? So the process, it kind of goes on a very granular level and expands out larger. So what AI is going to do, it's going to go down to a almost a micro-pixelation of these images, whether it's a JPEG or a GIF, and it's going to take the, that pixelation and expand it out larger and larger until it has the image as a whole. It can take that image, flip it, make a negative of it, turn it in all sorts of directions, and analyze and interpret ultimately what that image is of. It's going to compare it against databases and directories that already contain you know, 100, 1,000, millions and millions of images. And it's going to do that same analysis of all those images and find comparisons between the two. And as that happens, more people are, as more people are doing these searches using artificial intelligence, these systems are learning from the habits of people using this system. That's the machine learning that's coming into play. And it's taking those habits and it is going to morph and accommodate within the algorithms that are running in the background to make sure that more appropriate results are found and elevated in these search results. Mm -hmm. And I assume that Core Search every year is sort of working on their abilities to use these technologies. Are they constantly coming up with tweaks on their system? We are. It is a dynamic uh, process. So it is not something that really is static. That's one of the things about machine learning and the new technologies that algorithms are bringing to the table. As more users are on, and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of them every day that we have, our systems are learning more about it. Along with that, as, our, as filings in our databases are updated, that's something that's done every day. That has to be accommodated. So this pixel-by-pixel pixel analysis, as you're doing it side-by-side, side, it constantly has to change. The results are always changing. So this is something that Core Search is always doing day-by-day. Day. Mm -hmm. And how has AI-based logo searching changed uh, the trademark pre-screening and clearance process? What, what changes are we seeing? It's a tremendous amount of changes. So I started at Core Search 18 years ago. I was a trademark researcher. One of my specialties was logo searching. I love logo searching. It really is just as much an art as it is a science. And some logos, when you're doing your pre-searching, your pre-clearance, uh, they can be very, very black and white. So maybe it's an image of the Statue of Liberty or uh, the Lincoln Memorial, or, or maybe just a, a picture of a mountain with a moon over it, something that is not really going to fall into a broad uh, area of interpretation, where it is changing. When you're getting something along the lines of a geometric shape, something linear, something that almost looks like a Rorschach test, where as a researcher, when I was doing that, I would go to other researchers on the floor and it became this conversation. So look at this here. What do you think that's a picture of? Well, it could be a star. It could be two squares laid on top of each other. Uh, it could be um, a, a, a strange shaped rectangular with a triangle. So a lot of different things that uh, could be interpreted. Now, I would have to take all of those design codes and search manually for all of them. Sometimes I would be going through 20,000, 30,000 designs to find the ones that were most relevant for our customers and provide that to them. What AI is doing is it's discounting these design codes. 
It's looking at the image pixel by pixel and then bringing those most relevant to the forefront. So out of the equation go star, out of the equation go square, rectangle, anything geometric of that sort. And it's bringing the best records to the front. It is it making the design code book those codes obsolete? No. There's still a lot of relevance in there because they do act as a guide within those local PTOs to make sure uh, that they're being filed appropriately. But if you're looking for similarity, uh, it completely changes the game, especially on those geometric shapes and anything linear. Yeah, that certainly sounds like a sea change in, in how things are done. And I'm sure I'm excited to see what, what lies in front of us for the next five or 10 years. It's really changing rapidly. Mm-hmm. Now, what types of logos are best suited for an AI-based search? So really, any logo would be appropriate for AI-based search. Uh, I think that the example I just mentioned about uh, geometric, linear logos, but there's a few others that really are something to pay close attention to. One of the challenges that we have in the United States is that there is no PTO code for a stylized letter. What you can do with an AI search is you can upload a stylized letter and it's gonna look for others that are similar. Now, there is a prominent automotive company that has a particular letter. There is no design code associated with it. It's a script letter. And if you upload it into, for example, in Core Search's AI logo searching tool, you're going to find very similar script letters in very adjacent industries. Also, without any PTO code associated with it. If you are going onto a traditional screening tool, you're gonna to have to search the actual more formulative mark. So you might look for the actual letter and hope that there's going to be a figurative portion of it that comes back. And then kind of use your own knowledge of similar marks that are out there. Uh, with an AI tool, you can simply upload, as I mentioned, those letters and you will have similar marks that come back whether or whether or not they have a design code. As I mentioned, I like to use the analogy of it being a Rorschach test. I mm -hmm. look around and, you know, some things, there's that, that famous mark where it looks like it's a goblet. It looks like it's the number 25. It looks like two people looking at each other. They would all be unassociated when it comes to design codes, but it is one picture. Yes. It's really amazing how fast everything is developing and just trying to stay on top of this is, is quite a process in and of itself. Fascinating material, Matt. Um, how can people get in contact with you in case they have further questions? You can get in touch with me at my email, which is matthew.rubin, that's M-A-T-T-H-E-W dot R-U-B-I-N at coresearch.com. That's C-O-R-S-E-A-R-C-H dot com. Matthew, thanks so much for spending time with us today on the IP Fridays podcast. You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, 
please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.